Today's reading is taken from Daniel 4, verses 1 to 9, and then 19 to 37. Nebuchadnezzar's dream of a tree. King Nebuchadnezzar, to the peoples, nations, and men of every language who live in all the world, may you prosper greatly. It is my pleasure to tell you about the miraculous signs and wonders that the Most High God has performed for me. How great are his signs! How mighty are his wonders! His kingdom is an eternal kingdom. His dominion endures from generation to generation. I, Nebuchadnezzar, was at home in my palace, contented and prosperous. I had a dream that made me afraid. As I was lying in my bed, the images and visions that passed through my mind terrified me. So I commanded that all the wise men of Babylon be brought before me to interpret the dream for me. When the magicians, enchanters, astrologers, and diviners came, I told them the dream, but they could not interpret it for me. Finally, Daniel came into my presence, and I told him the dream. He's called Belteshazzar, after the name of my God, and the spirit of the holy gods is in him. I said, Belteshazzar, chief of the magicians, I know that the spirit of the holy gods is in you, and no mystery is too difficult for you. Here is my dream. Interpret it for me. Moving on to verse 19, Daniel interprets the dream. Then Daniel, also called Belteshazzar, was greatly perplexed for a time and his thoughts terrified him. So the king said, Belteshazzar, do not let the dream or its meaning alarm you. Belteshazzar answered, My lord, if only the dream applied to your enemies and its meaning to your adversaries, the tree you saw, which grew large and strong with its top touching the sky, visible to the whole earth, with beautiful leaves and abundant fruit, providing food for all, giving shelter to the beasts of the field, and having nesting places in its branches for the birds of the air. You, O king, are that tree. You have become great and strong. Your greatness has grown until it reaches the sky, and your dominion extends to the distant parts of the earth. You, O king, saw a messenger, a holy one, coming down from heaven and saying, cut down the tree and destroy it, but leave the stump bound with iron and bronze in the grass of the field while its roots remain in the ground. Let him be drenched with the dew of heaven. Let him live like the wild animals until seven times pass by for him. This is the interpretation, O king. And this is the decree of the Most High has issued against my Lord, the King. You will be driven away from your people, and you will live with wild animals. You will eat grass 
like cattle and be drenched with the dew of heaven. Seven times will pass by for you until you acknowledge that the Most High is sovereign over the kingdoms of men and gives them to anyone he wishes. The command to leave the stump of the tree with its roots means that your kingdom will be restored to you when you acknowledge that heaven rules. Therefore, O king, be pleased to accept my advice. Renounce your sins by doing what is right and your wickedness by being kind to the oppressed. It may be that then your prosperity will continue. All this happened to King Nebuchadnezzar. Twelve months later, as the king was walking on the roof of the royal palace of Babylon, he said, Is this not the great Babylon that I have built as the royal residence by my mighty power and for the glory of my majesty? The words were still on his lips when a voice came from heaven. This is what is decreed for you, King Nebuchadnezzar. Your royal authority has been taken from you. You will be driven away from the people, and you will live with the wild animals. You will eat grass like cattle. Seven times will pass by for you until you acknowledge that the Most High is sovereign over the kingdoms of men and gives them to anyone he wishes. Immediately, what had been said about Nebuchadnezzar was fulfilled. He was driven away from the people and ate grass like cattle. His body was drenched with the dew of heaven until his hair grew like the feathers of an eagle and his nails like the claws of a bird. At the end of that time, I, Nebuchadnezzar, raised my eyes towards heaven and my sanity was restored. Then I praised the Most High. I honored and glorified him who lives forever. His dominion is an eternal dominion. His kingdom endures from generation to generation. All the peoples of the earth are regarded as nothing. He does what he pleases with the powers of heaven and the peoples of the earth. No one can hold back his hand or say to him, What have you done? At the same time that my sanity was restored, my honor and splendor were returned to me for the glory of my kingdom. My advisers and nobles sought me out, and I was restored to my throne and became even greater than before. Now I, Nebuchadnezzar, praise and exult and glorify the King of Heaven because everything he does is right and all his ways are just and those who walk in pride he is able to humble. These are the words of the Lord. Thanks very much, Karen. If you can have your Bibles open to uh, Daniel chapter 4 as we go through it, that would be great. And actually, we are covering Gen- Daniel chapter 5 as well, just that we don't have the time to read it all um, this week. But as we come to this text, let's pray that God will speak to us. 
Lord, we give you great praise and thanks for your living words, and we pray that you will speak uh, through these words um, and make them alive in our lives, that you, may, you might humble us, uh, that you might uh, help us to see your greatness, that we might live in the light of that truth. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Hong Kong is a city where people come to succeed, and when people succeed, actually, um, they can start to believe that they really are not like other people who haven't succeeded. They're not like others. Uh, they're they're li- like God in some way. It makes sense because when people become successful, they actually um, are become less accountable. The normal accountability falls away. They start meeting people only with people who are of sort of their caliber. Um, they become inaccessible. Uh, they usually sur- are surrounded then by- surround themselves by people who will only say good things about them and never criticize them. Successful people have natural tendency to think, well, I succeeded because of my own effort, because of my talents, because of what I have done. They tend to think that they've earned it because they were special, because they are better than others. And Nebuchadnezzar, as you see today, is that man who was wildly successful. Of course, um, remember, this was a man who was just so, he thought so highly of himself. In chapter 3, he made a statue 27.5 meters high of solid gold and had people bow down to it every time music played. He said to people, you have to worship me. Historically, the Babylonian Empire was one of the greatest under his leadership, Nebuchadnezzar's leadership it expanded to modern Egypt, Iran, Syria, Saudi Arabia. I mean, uh, yeah, Saudi Arabia. All the stuff that you hear about Babylon is actually are things that Nebuchadnezzar built. If you go to the British Museum today, actually, that the, the gate that you see in the picture there, it's there in the British Museum and it's written about. This is what one of the historians uh, writes about Babylon, the palace had large courts, reception rooms, throne rooms, residence, and the famous hanging gardens, a vaulted terraced structure with an elaborate water supply for its trees, plants, and apparently built by Nebuchadnezzar for his Median queen. From the palace, he could see the city's 27-kilometer outer double wall, which he built. The palace adjoined processional avenue that Nebuchadnezzar had paved with limestone and decorated with lion figures, emblematic of Ishtar. He thought of himself as a great man, the man of a great empire, and the center of it was him. Just take a look at the content of the dream that he had from verses 10 and on. Yes, this is a dream that God gives him, and it becomes, I think, quickly clear that actually this is a dream that uh, this is actually the way that he thought of himself. The tree was in the middle of the land, Verse 10, it touched the heavens and it was visible from all over the, uh, the earth. Its trees were beautiful, its fruit abundant. It fed actually everything around it. Everything fed from this tree. It sheltered everything around it uh, too. The, the, the birds made shelter in the tree, the, the animals around it. But of course, the judgment starts coming in verse 13. Um, He also sees that judgment coming upon that tree, being cut down and and, and living as a stump. But now, this is where we, I think, find out that that Nebuchadnezzar thought that this was about him. Nebuchadnezzar says 
right? He says this, he doesn't know uh, what this dream is about. He doesn't understand the dream. But really, I mean, if you look at the dream itself, it's not that difficult to figure out what this is about, isn't it? I think he chose not to understand it because he identifies with the tree. It makes sense of why he woke up scared. He woke up scared, not just because he didn't understand, but because he thought at the back of his mind that this was about him and judgment that would fall upon him. I think God makes it pretty obvious what this uh, dream is about. For example, verse 10 to 15, the dream describes a tree, right? But in the middle of verse 15, it switches pronoun. It's not it. It's not the tree anymore. It's a he. Take a look at the pronoun there in verse 15. Let him be drenched with the dew of heaven. Let him be with the animals. Verse 16, let his mind be changed. This is about one person. This is about a person. Who could it be? The angel tells the Nebuchadnezzar the purpose of the dream as well, which is also uh, the, the point of the whole text. Verse 17, the decision is to announce by the messengers, the Holy One declares the verdict, so that the living may know that the Most High is sovereign over all kingdoms on earth and gives them to anyone he wishes and sets them over the lowliest of people. That's the point. The reason why the tree will be cut down is to show that God is in control over this world. There's no person um, who, who is at the center of the world. If he is there, it's because God has put him there. That's the point. Of, that, that point is announced, right, in the dream. Really? Nebuchadnezzar didn't know who this was about? I think this also explains in verse 7 uh, why he calls everyone first, right? Even though Daniel is the chief of the Magi, chief, uh, but he calls them magicians, enchanters, astrologers, and diviners before he calls Daniel. And remember, this wasn't the first time he had a peculiar dream. In chapter 2, he had that dream about the big tower. Really, he didn't know? It seems to me that he didn't want to know. He didn't want this to be spelled out uh, because he didn't want to admit that he is this tree, that he is a mere mortal permitted to rule for a time by God's gracious permission, that it is God who had planted him there, that he is not all-powerful. He is not this, this uh, powerful figure. He didn't want to admit. He didn't want to admit that his success was given by God. And you see, despite the appearance, despite the appearance of grandeur, God is God. God is in charge. He is sovereign there back in Babylon. He is sovereign over today as well. If you look around the world, you might not think that God is in charge. If you look around Hong Kong, you might think, well, money is in charge. Banks are in charge. After all, money feeds and shelters. Banks are multi, multinational. These are multinational corporations with great power. But appearance can be deceiving. God is in charge. Countries like China, U.S. would like to think, uh, would like to have their citizens believe that they are in charge, that they are all-powerful, and they go to great lengths, lengths to maintain that illusion of omnipotence. This is why I think they get so insecure and brutal at times. But God is in charge. Your boss might think that he's in charge over the company, over your life. But that's not true either. God has placed him there in that workplace 
for a time, God is our ultimate boss. And not only that, this is the point that you have to get out of this text. You are not in charge. You are not in charge over your life. You might think that you've built your company, your practice, your life on your own. The success is something that is owed to you because somehow you are special. But no, the Most High is sovereign over all kingdoms on earth and gives them to anyone he wishes. It's God who put you in that position. And really, how much, are we, how much of our life do we actually control? Do we select the century in which we were born? Which country, which city, to which parents? The teachers that you've had in your lives, the people that you've had, colleagues that you've had, the opportunities that you've had, did you choose to control all these things? Did you control all those opportunities? No. Why is it that we think that we are so in control over our lives? Could it be that like Nebuchadnezzar, we're in denial because we like the idea that we deserve the success that we have. That what I have is what I deserve. No, God is in charge. And God shows that in this chapter by taking it away. Taking it away as quickly as possible, right? Nebuchadnezzar's power, he removes it in an instant. instant. And he, to remove all doubts that it is he who is doing this, he announces it. He says, in a dream, this will happen to you, doesn't he? And then he waits. He waits until Nebuchadnezzar's pride reaches its peak when he goes up to that great palace that he built. And as he sees this whole, uh, the, 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 the city and the wall, and he says to himself in verse 30, I have built this great city by my power and by my, uh, for my glory. And look how swiftly the judgment falls upon him. Verse 31. Even as the words were on his lips, God speaks. Verse 33. Immediately, immediately, what had been said was fulfilled. Nebuchadnezzar loses his mind. He's driven out and he acts like an, uh, 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 an ox. He's drenched with the dew of heaven. His hair and nail grow like an animal's. Some people think that he suffered from a disease called lycanthropy, which is a man thinking that he's an animal. But the point is, God humbles him by making him less than a human being. God humbles him by making him less than a human being. This is how a commentator put it. I think it's just well put. A man who thinks he is like a god must become a beast to learn that he is only a human being. So God shows he's sovereign by removing all that power in one moment. And not just that. Actually, he says, he announces that he's in charge by restoring his power too. In an instance, just as, just, uh, just as well. The dream foretold that he would suffer for seven times. I tend to think that seven is uh, symbolic. So for, he suffered for the perfect amount of time. And when that period is over, verse 34, I, Nebuchadnezzar, raised my eyes towards the heaven, and my sanity was restored. In an instance, it, it, in instant, it came back. And raising his eyes towards the heaven is way of saying that he recognized that it is heaven. It is God who rules. 
not himself. Remember, Daniel also said in verse 26 that he would be restored when he acknowledges that heaven rules. And so when he looks to heaven, he's saying, God rules. It's not me. Even with all the power that I had, I am just a mere servant of God, placed by God in my position. See how the dominant pronoun changes once again in verses 3 when he praises God and verses 34 and 35. Look, how great are his signs, his mighty wonders, his kingdom, his dominion. Verse 34, same thing, verse 34 and 45. He praises God for being eternal, sovereign over all people. He says his power is unchallengeable. He finally realizes that it's God who judges, God who restores God who rules over the world. Well, what does this mean for us? What it means, I think, is one, we could live courageously and also lovingly, trusting in God's rule. I hope uh, we can agree uh, that the dream was self-explanatory. But why is it then that the Babylonians, the best of Babylonians, the magicians, enchanters, diviners, astrologers couldn't interpret the dream? My guess is that they, it's not that they couldn't, it's that they really didn't want to. I mean, consider the context. In chapter 3, the previous chapter, this is the king who threatened to kill everyone who didn't worship him, who didn't bow down to him. Uh, he threw people into the fiery furnace. They're afraid to tell the truth. They're afraid to tell, uh, challenge him and his power. And what everybody else is unwilling to do, Daniel does he steps up. He doesn't fear Nebuchadnezzar because he fears God. He knows that God is his boss. And look what he says to him in verse 27. Therefore, your majesty, be pleased to accept my advice. Renounce your sins by doing what is right and your wickedness by being kind to the oppressed. Can you imagine saying this to Nebuchadnezzar? Really, what he's saying is, look, you have been wicked. You should renounce your sin. You should change your ways. You should stop oppressing the poor. You should be kind to these people. Could you say something like that to your boss when your boss is doing something wrong? Could you imagine saying this to Nebuchadnezzar? But Daniel does so because he knows that God is the one who is in control. At the same time, he also does it lovingly. He does it in a way that's not sort of self-righteous. It's not condemnation that he wants. Um, and if you think about Nebuchadnezzar, it is really remarkable how kind Daniel is to him, isn't it? Because Nebuchadnezzar is a, ki a king who destroyed his own country, his countries, uh, Jerusalem and Israel, uh, Judah. Uh, he exiled people. He destroyed the temple. It took the articles out of the temple. But even to him, Daniel can show compassion. I mean, the way that he addresses uh, the king, right? It, it, your majesty. And it seems that he genuinely wants Nebuchadnezzar to repent. Be pleased to accept my advice. It may be that uh, then that your prosperity, prosperity may continue. Daniel can do this because he, he knows that uh, Nebuchadnezzar, like him, is mere servant, that Nebuchadnezzar is somebody that God has placed in position of power to do his will, just like him. 
He knows that everyone is, is placed by God, in, by God's rule. You see, Christians can and should speak to power, to our bosses, to those who have authority, to governments even, because we, when we see injustice and wrong, because we know that their authority is delegated, that we serve, they serve this God that we serve. But when we do it, we do it humbly. We do it not from a, self, a place of self-righteousness, but from the level ground of realization that we are all servants of the same God in charge to do His will. So there is a lesson about speaking truth to power, but the main lesson that we ought to take away from all this is obviously the lesson of humility. Humility. That is how the chapter concludes, uh, verse 36, the very uh, last verse. And those who walk in pride, he is able to humble. C.S. Lewis has this uh, chapter on mere Christianity on uh, pride. It's just called the great sin. There he says, according to Christian teachers, the essential vice, the utmost evil, is pride. Unchastity, anger, greed, drunkenness, and all that are mere flea bites in comparison. It was through pride that the devil became the devil. Pride leads to every other vice. It is complete anti-God state of mind. When one is proud, he doesn't see God. He doesn't need God. He might pay lip service to him, as Nebuchadnezzar did in chapter 3. But his life didn't change at all. It was because he was so filled with himself that he, so th- he thought so little of God. And in the same chapter, Lewis continues and writes this, and he might as well be writing about Nebuchadnezzar. As long as you are proud, you cannot know God. A proud man is always looking down on things and people. And of course, as long as you are looking down, you cannot see something that is above you. As long as you're looking down on people and and the things around you, you cannot see the God that is above you. You cannot know God if you are proud. So let me ask, how proud are all of you? How proud are you? How do you view your success? Do you view them as God's gift to you? Or do, you, uh, or do you think that it's something that you have earned and, and you have earned on your own, that this is something that makes you better than other people? Do you seek to pl- display your pedigree and your credentials as part of your identity? Like uh, Nebuchadnezzar thought of his success as his part of his identity. How do we think of our success? Do we look down on people? Of course, that's a huge sign that we are proud, feeling superior to others. But equally, how often do you feel inferior to others? There's pride there too, isn't there? Being humble means um, that we can lose both the sense of superiority as well as inferiority because we are who we are. We are where we are because of God, because of God's grace. Because God has placed us in our stations of life. And being humble, obviously, will affect, affect relationships um, around us. 
especially if you're in positions of power. And I know that many of you are, right? Many of you are in, you have people who are working for you, people who are, um, uh, who, uh, um, you are administrators, teachers, professors, um, people. How, how do you treat your subordinates? Do you use your power to oppress or to serve them? Do we treat everyone with kindness and dignity? If you've been at Shatin Church for a while, uh, this is a message that I often <laughs> preach. But I think in my defense, this is a message that the Bible often gives. In my defense, the message of the Bible is God is God, and we are not. And we need to live in the light of this truth. Uh, isn't it interesting also that in this whole thing, how gracious and patient God is towards Nebuchadnezzar? You know, Nebuchadnezzar had this dream in chapter 2. Um, God shows his power in the fiery furnace in chapter 3. Even in this chapter, God warns Nebuchadnezzar through a dream and is stricken after a year, only after a year, when he, his pride reaches its peak. God is gracious and compassionate, slow to anger, rich in love. But here is where it gets scary. Niels told you uh, a few weeks back that this is a section... This section of the scripture is uh, written in chiasm, in this sort of sandwich uh, 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 structure. And chapter 4 is paired with chapter 5. And chapter 4 shows God's gracious, uh, how God is gracious and compassionate, slow to anger, rich in mercy. But chapter 5 shows that there is a time of judgment that will come. We don't have time to go into chapter 5 in detail, so I encourage you to read it on your own. It's a great story. It's about Belshazzar, a ruler who's called the king here. He succeeds um, Nebonius, and he rules over the Babylonian Empire. He puts on a great banquet, a feast, uh, but he flaunts his wealth and pride. And one of the ways that he does it is because he gets the, the, the goblets, the chalice and, and the cups from the temple of Jerusalem out. And he uses it in his private party as if to flaunt his power, as if to challenge God, saying, what can you do about this? He uses it in a party. And in the middle of the party, a mysterious hand appears and writes these four words, mene, mene. Tekel Parson. And Daniel, like before, is called to interpret this dream, and it's essentially a message of judgment. And the reason for this judgment is given in chapter 5, verse 22. But you, Belshazzar, his successor, have not humbled yourself, though you knew all of this. And you see, here it's talking about the story of Nebuchadnezzar. He's saying, Daniel is saying, you knew the story of Nebuchadnezzar and what happened to him. Instead, you have set yourself up against the Lord of heaven. You had the goblets from the temple brought to you, but you did not honor the God who holds in his hand, in his hand your life and your ways. And verse 30, that very night, Belshazzar, the king of Babylonians, was slain. But you, Belshazzar, have not humbled yourself, even though you knew all of this. And here is the scary thing in all of this. Chapter 5 will come to all of us. To all of us. We have the warnings here in the pages of Daniel 
in the pages of the Old Testament prophets and Jesus himself, God will judge all who are proud. And none of us will be okay by ourselves. None of us. After all, haven't we all lived like we knew better than God? After all, haven't we all ignored and disobeyed him in our life? Haven't we all taken credit for the things that God has done in our lives? Haven't we all been proud? And that day of judgment will come when God with all his might will humble the proud. But at the same time, with that great power, God also chose to send his son Jesus. And Jesus, though in his very nature, God humbled himself and became a human being. And he, he became obedient to death, even death upon the cross. You see, um, God is God. Jesus is God. But he became like Nebuchadnezzar. He became Belshazzar. He was humbled. And he was stripped. He was stricken. And he was slain. But he did that for us. He did that so that when the day of judgment comes, we might walk in the palace that he deserved to walk in. So let me ask you, after all these warnings, after all this truth that has been proclaimed through the scripture, do you trust that God is in charge? And before that God, how could you not be humble? Let's pray. Lord, we give you great praise and thanks for these words that you have given to us. Help us to heed its warning. Help us to be, help us to realize that we are human beings um, who have Uh, whom you have graciously uh, given us life, uh, uh, whom um, you have given life and and power and and opportunities and, and the good things around us. And help us to trust you and you only. And help us to heed the warning and turn to Christ that we may live humbly before the God that you have sent. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.